America at a Crossroads is a weekly live webinar series that brings together journalists, scholars, thought leaders, and policymakers for discussions regarding the state of American democracy, where we've been, where we are, and where we're going. The series was jointly founded by Jews United for Democracy and Justice and Community Advocates, Inc. To register for our live webinars, join our email list at JewsUnitedForDemocracy.org. Now, please welcome our award-winning NPR journalist, broadcast, our moderator, an award-winning NPR broadcast journalist and a radio personality, par excellence, frequent America at a Crossroads moderator, the talented Madeline Brand, who's with us tonight. Madeline? Janice, thank you. Thank you for having me back. I'm really excited to talk to Brett. This is, I think, the first time we've talked in this forum. Brett Stevens is a conservative columnist for the New York Times, and he is also a staunch critic of the current Republican Party and its leader, Donald Trump. Uh, he writes about foreign policy, such as a recent column calling for the defunding of UNRWA, and also domestic politics and cultural issues, such as the Claudine Gay controversy at Harvard. Brett studied political philosophy at the University of Chicago and comparative politics at the London School of Economics. He worked for the Wall Street Journal in Brussels. He was editor-in-chief of the Jerusalem Post, and he was the Wall Street Journal's foreign affairs columnist, where he won the 2013 Pulitzer Prize for commentary. And he's author of the book, America in Retreat, The New Isolationism and the Coming Global Disorder. Brett, welcome. Nice to have you. Madeline, it's nice to be with you today. You're such an underachiever. <laughs> All right. Well, let's talk about Israel and we'll talk about what the news, uh, the news that happened today. There was a, a ceasefire proposal put forth by Hamas that uh, Prime Minister Netanyahu called delusional and he dismissed it and said that victory is within reach. As Israeli forces push into Rafah, and, uh, which is on the border with Egypt, a million or so Palestinians have fled there. What now does victory look like for Israel? Netanyahu says it's uh, it will happen in a matter of months. Uh, Madeline, before I start, I think I would be really remiss in not if I didn't mention how much I missed David Lair and mm -hmm. what an immense loss yeah. his very untimely passing was. I mean, the last time I saw him was the last time I was on uh, this show. He was uh, an incredible friend to me, to the Jewish community, an extraordinary force in 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 cultural life, certainly in Southern California, but but beyond that. And I just want to begin by saying that he, I miss him, and I think thousands of people, especially everyone who's associated with this program, misses him very dearly. Now, to to your question, the scale of the military challenge um, Israel faces in Gaza is is vast, and it and it vastly exceeds what I think any of us thought it might be at the beginning of the war. You look at a map and you see a strip that is uh, just a few miles wide, not more than twenty five miles uh, long, with its back to the sea on one side and its back to Egypt on another. How hard could it be for the mighty Israeli army? to uh, to defeat it. And of course, it's proving to be an extraordinary uh, challenge on, on multiple levels, not the least of which is that Hamas has built, um, by some estimates, somewhere between 350 and 450 miles of tunnels. Some of these tunnels, more than 200 feet underground, uh, made with reinforced concrete, steel, um, uh, extraordinarily difficult warfare. When we think of the toughest fights that America has ever had, whether it was on Mount Suribachi on uh, Iwo Jima um, or in, in, in Vietnam, they often involve this kind of uh, tunnel fighting. So it's worth bearing in mind that against a lesser enemy, it took the Iraqi army with American assistance nine months to defeat ISIS in the city of uh, Mosul. My suspicion is that it's going to take at least about as long for the Israeli army to succeed if it does succeed in, in Gaza. And the key to success isn't going to be that every single last Hamas fighter is going to be uh, killed or captured or otherwise neutralized. The key to success is really going to rest on, on uh, two things, and hopefully uh, hopefully a third. 
Um, the first of which is that Hamas is um, not only neutralized as a fighting force, but utterly destroyed as a fighting force. And I think that's probably the most uh, realizable uh, of, of the goals. Um, the second is that some form of some political structure is going to emerge um, from that defeat of Hamas uh, that is going to present Israel with better options than it has now. And that's that's really hard right now to envision because I don't see Saudi Arabia or Egypt or even the Palestinian Authority raising their hand in eagerly trying to pick up the pieces from Gaza. And the third, and I think dearest to many of our hearts, will be the return of every uh, living hostage um, just because of the uh, huge moral and emotional weight that I think any Israeli, but any any Jew, I think any decent human being attaches to uh, to their safe return. So that's a very tall order, but I suspect that Israel will be able to achieve the first, the other two much harder to say. Um, well, much harder to get the hostages back. Um, one a member of the of the government government high up was saying has said and has um departed from Netanyahu by saying that it's impossible to get the hostages back while waging all-out war in Gaza. So that there has to be some kind of agreement between Hamas and Israel for a pause in the fighting, a temporary ceasefire, whatever you want to call it, in order to secure the release of the hostages, which is the priority for many Israeli citizens. Yeah, I mean, Israel's trapped in many paradoxes, but one of the paradoxes is that it can only achieve a pause in the fighting by fighting harder and putting more pressure on Hamas to seek a pause as it as as they agreed to one back in November for the release of the first hundred odd uh, hostages. Um, but the harder the fighting, the more the hostages' lives are are put in uh, put in danger. So Israel is really faced with um, a, a, a terrible terrible dilemma between two imperatives that are never going to be um, uh, easily reconciled. And, you know, I think many of us, um, both Israel's friends and as well as Israel's uh, critics, seem to think that Israel has to have miraculous tricks up its sleeve that can, uh, you know, perform seeming miracles like another Entebbe uh, rescue. Um, it's just not that easy. It's just not that easy because um, the, 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 the tunnels they're in, the location they're in, uh, the danger they're in. I, I've heard reports that Yahya Sinwar, the head of uh, the military head of Hamas, has at least ten hostages in his near vicinity at any moment, um, essentially as as human shields. So the challenge is is terrible. But one thing I think is really important to point out, uh, and that gets lost in a lot of discussions of the conflict, is the profound cynicism of the way in which Hamas is fighting this war because Hamas fighters are as safe as anyone can be in Gaza deep underground and it's Palestinian civilians above ground who are the most exposed to fire and that is a deliberate strategy of Hamas which believes that it wins every time it kills an Israeli uh it wins tactically or even strategically but it wins propagandistically every time a Palestinian is killed in an effort to defeat Hamas mm. But speaking of propagandistically, Israel in, is increasingly losing that uh, war in the wider world. It's increasingly being criticized for the scale of destruction, the scale of human loss and misery. And so at what point does the United States pressure Israel to do more to safeguard civilian life? to pull back, to wage its war. I know Blinken has been urging um, Israel to do that, as has Biden, but, you know, with very little stick or carrot attached to it. So at what point does the United States do change its tactic when it comes to the scale of destruction? Well, a couple points. Um, I have been lavish in my praise for the Biden administration because I think that the president has rightly understood that this is an existential crisis for Israel, that the only uh, result that any Israeli is going to accept uh, is the is the military defeat of Hamas, and that the only possibility 
over the long term for a future Palestinian state is going to emerge from Hamas's defeat, uh, uh, not a ceasefire. Now, you have seen the Israelis change their tactics and change their approach on account of relatively quiet or not so quiet American pressure. Israel has been withdrawing brigades uh, from the Gaza Strip. The intensity of the war they're conducting is, is much lower than it was uh, in the first uh, two months of, of fighting. You don't hear again anymore of the 2,000-pound bombs being dropped on, 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 on areas of, of Gaza. But I think it's important that all that being said, um, I, on October 8th, the day after the uh, massacre, I went to uh, Times Square in Manhattan to witness a protest of um, supposed peace activists who looked ecstatic, there's no other word for it, euphoric, uh, at the moment when Israel was still trying to get Hamas off of its own territory, uh, when there was no bombing of Gaza, when, when no Israeli troops were in Gaza, they were already accusing Israel of committing genocide when uh, 1,200 Israeli civilians uh, had been had been murdered and and hundreds more uh, mutilated, raped, kidnapped, uh, um, uh, and 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 brutalized. So uh, the the question of winning the war of hearts and minds, at least in certain quarters, is is a foregone conclusion. Israel was going to lose it no matter what, because a large segment, certainly of the American left, uh, wanted to see Israel as the aggressor, irrespective of uh, of the facts on the ground. I think Israel's pr primary interest right now is is twofold. The Israeli government, as best as it can, and I'm no fan of the Netanyahu government. I've uh, called repeatedly for uh, for Netanyahu to go. Uh, the Israeli government has to understand that its purpose is to avenge October the seventh and to defeat Hamas and create profoundly different conditions in Gaza. But the real audience for Israel is not. I'm sorry to say that the average reader of um, mainstream metropolitan newspapers, okay, the real audience, people who are really looking are the Emiratis, the Bahrainis, the Saudis, um, the Egyptians, all of whom are very interested, whatever they say publicly, in Israel defeating Hamas. The reason that Israel has been able to make inroads in the Arab world in the last few years is not because the Emiratis have suddenly discovered the joys of Torah. It's because Israel has, appe has appeared to be a successful, resourceful, capable, and militarily strong state. And if Israel loses that perception, it's in a lot more danger than if it loses a few hearts and minds on Wilshire Boulevard or, or, or uh, Greenwich Village. When you talk about the protesters, I think you're talking about younger people in general, yeah. right? Um, and... Younger people in general, uh, when you look at the polls, um, they're very critical, obviously, of Biden and the policies and, and of Israel in general. And part of it is because they've only known Netanyahu as the leader of Israel, yeah. right? And so they have a view of Israel that the rest of us probably don't have because we're we've been around longer. We've seen um, phases in the history where there was possibility for peace, where there were more moderate leaders, where there wasn't all of this, you know, illegal annexation of, of territories in the West Bank and things like that, um, and the embrace of a far-right governing coalition. And so I guess when you take that all into consideration, this younger generation, many, many of them Jewish, are highly critical of Israel and of Zionism in general which seems to me to be a pretty big existential threat going forward as this generation gets older and assumes power later. And so it would seem to me that Israel would be very concerned and the U.S. would be very concerned um, at the possibility of losing an entire generation of American Jews um, and, and their opinion of Israel and what that would mean for you know, future relations and future funding. Listen, it's an excellent question. I worry about it a great deal. I'm 50 years old, and Netanyahu has been prime minister or close to being prime minister for most of my adult life, at least. He was a he was a figure on the world stage as ambassador, Israel's ambassador to the UN when I was in middle school. And he's been around uh, uh, forever. 
I think he's a toxic force in Israeli politics, although you can't deny the fact that if you want Israel to be a democracy, democracies get to vote for the person they want. And he's won uh, uh, election after election. I, I dearly wish there were another face in office. That being said, let's say if Naftali Bennett were prime minister again, and you know, Prime Minister Bennett put together one of the most inclusive coalitions, not only in Israeli history, but probably in, in the history of any democracy in terms of uh, political, religious, uh, gender uh, pluralism, right? It would be the same policy. Israelis are profoundly united after October, uh, October the seventh, and there's very little that um, uh, uh, public pressure outside of Israel can do to change that. Now, the the larger issue you raise, Madeline, is something that really concerns me, um, which is the disenchantment that so many younger people, and particularly younger Jews, have with not just Net the Netanyahu government, but with Zionism uh, uh, in, in general. And so, uh, you know, I used to make a point, I used to go out of my way as a columnist to write less about Israel, because I didn't feel like I wanted just to be the, you know, the pro-Israel columnist at the New York Times. There are a lot of issues that have nothing to do with Israel that interest me and interest readers. But I've been extraordinarily passionate about this subject because I think that as um, views of Israel sour, and as Israel is not just criticized, but slandered and libeled maliciously, unfairly, and anti-Semitically, that has also put the position of Jews in the United States, whether they're progressive, conservative, uh, secular, orthodox, in real jeopardy. And I, I know of a lot of really middle of the road, if not left-leaning Jewish friends. This is anecdotal. I, I don't know uh, if there's data to prove the anecdote, who after October 7th suddenly noticed that a lot of the movements with which they had which they had supported, with to which they had given money, their time, even even for whom they had worked, turned on on the Jews in a way that was stunning and and shocking. I think of even though they were brought taken down, the BLM uh, slogans, uh, at least some BLM chapters that put up slogans with uh, the paragliders, you know, as 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 one example. I think of all the women's groups that really had not a word to say in the face of clear evidence of the mass rape of uh, Israeli uh, women on October uh, on October seventh. I think of other groups that really came out in a unequivocally, not only anti-Israel way, but in a way that kind of brought up all the old anti-Semitic tropes. And I think a lot of, there's a, also a generation of Jews who have moved in the other direction since October 7th, that they feel more strongly that the security of the state of Israel matters to their security as Jews in the United States. I know people like that as well, who are now wearing Stars of David and they never did before, and they're feeling a, a great affinity. And, um, but I'm wondering, I want to, I wonder if we can sort of segue into a, a political discussion uh, with this uh, in terms of the election. Um, so th you are doubtless aware of this NBC poll that came out over the weekend. And it, speaking of Israel, among uh, voters under 35 years old, only 15% approve of Biden's handling of the war, 70% disapprove. This is a president who needs every vote he can get at this point for re-election. And the prospect of losing the youth vote is very real on this very issue. So how do you think Biden should handle that? The majority of the American people remain pro-Israel. So, uh, I think Biden would look uh, would would fall between the proverbial two stools if he were to say suddenly take a sharp leftward turn uh, and and try to align himself um, with uh, kind of the anti-Israel wing or the Israel critical wing of of the Democratic Party. And I don't think he's going to do it because Biden is a sincere human being. He wears his heart on his sleeve. I think. What you saw after October 7th was the voice of some of Biden's innermost convictions. You know, President Biden is a political leader who has known every Israeli prime minister since Golda Meir. 
before the year of the year of my birth, when he became a senator, 1973, that's when he started knowing Israeli prime ministers. This goes deep with him. And uh, I've heard that Biden or members of the Biden family have a saying, um, only nail yourself to a big cross. You know, only only you should only be willing to sacrifice yourself on, on, a, on a really big cross, on something that really matters. And I think for Biden, my sense is that this really matters. And I'll give you an example. You know, a lot maybe there's some conservative people on this call. You remember in 2006, there was a staggering war. At the time, it seemed a staggering war between Israel and Lebanon. And the Bush administration, which was supposedly one of the most pro-Israel administrations uh, that, that we'd known, pretty much brought that war to a close after, I think, 34 days with a toothless Security Council resolution, 1701, if I remember, that effectively empowered Hezbollah to set up, uh, you know, in place itself as it never had before uh, in Lebanon and put Israel's security in danger. We're now in the, what, fourth month of, of Biden's support for Israel. The Israelis have been very candid that this is going to take nine months uh, I think Biden is is prepared to to fight this because he's also mindful that uh, he's playing for the history books, not just for the state of Michigan. Right. But, but in the meantime, he may lose. It's possible. And then um, if if Trump is elected, is if that Biden loses? It's not going to be because of his stand on Israel. No, no, but he, for other reasons, the economy probably most most likely immigration. Immigration. <laughs> so, um, if Trump wins re-election, is that good for Israel? Let me answer this this way: If Trump wins re-election, it's really bad for the whole world, and so what's <laughs> bad for the whole world is probably in the long run bad for Israel. Um, uh, uh, it's very hard to predict what Trump 2.0 will look like. Uh, some of some people I really respect say it's going to be infinitely worse than Trump 1.0. My own suspicion it's going to be uh, more of the same. But my sense is uh, maybe Trump will double down on his isolationist impulses. You heard him with very sharp, very sharp words for Netanyahu, not because of Netanyahu's policies in the West Bank or Gaza or anything else, but because Netanyahu didn't endorse the election lies after uh, after the last election and, and actually called Joe Biden up to congratulate him on, on his victory. Um, my, my deep sense really comes down to this, which is that Trump advances the forces of isolationism in the United States and therefore chaos in the world. Israel came into existence in 1948, the same year the Truman Doctrine was declared. That's the doctrine which essentially which the United States essentially said, we're going to defend the friends of freedom against the enemies of freedom. Trump represents the antithesis of the Truman Doctrine, the end of the Truman Doctrine. Um, Israel has only known one world order, which is the world order of Pax Americana. And I tremble for what happens to small countries, not just Israel, but Estonia, South Korea, and so on in the post-Pax Americana world. Well, speaking of, uh, today the Senate voted down the immigration bill, which had $60 billion of funding for Ukraine. What does this war look like without American military aid? It, 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 I'm almost speechless, Madeline, at the dereliction of duty by the Republican Party. Um, it is a betrayal of everything that the United States has stood for since we stood for freedom in the Second World War. To imagine that we are going to allow Ukraine to lose, to not give them the ammunition that they desperately need, to allow Putin to march into Ukraine like, Pol like Hitler marching into, into Poland, so that he can then go on to threaten other European and NATO member states, is such a staggering thought. It's staggering because of the moral dereliction, but it's staggering also because of the stupidity uh, uh, at, at work here. Do we imagine for one second that if Putin is victorious in Ukraine, that the Chinese won't draw the lesson, that they can then march on Taiwan? Uh, 
Mm -hmm. that Iran won't draw the lesson, that it can become even more aggressive in the Middle East or race towards a nuclear weapon. It's an invitation to chaos. You know, I was very critical of President Biden for withdrawing his his for withdrawing from Afghanistan. And I argued at the time that a withdrawal from Afghanistan would be a signal to Russia and a signal to China that the United States lacked the will to defend its allies. Now, you could make the argument that Afghanistan was a country too far, wasn't really central to our national interest. Harder to make that argument with Ukraine, much harder to make that argument with the little island that supplies every one of your iPhones with the semiconductors it needs to run uh, the way it runs now. So uh, I, I, I lack the language to describe the debacle that people like so-called Speaker Mike Johnson are inflicting on the United States. And by the way, when the president was prepared to give them a huge win on immigration. Right. I mean, as another columnist has written, they caught the car and they didn't want it now. It's again. It reminds me of the movie Airplane, I think my all-time favorite movie. Uh, you know, I picked the wrong <laughs> week to stop sniffing glue or whatever. whatever. <laughs> Love, love Leslie Nielsen. Um, right. And so speaking of immigration, well, no, let's stay with Ukraine for a little bit more. So, so without this funding, Ukraine, you know, it's still getting funding from, from the EU, but it's not necessarily military funding. Um, it's not supplies. It's not equipment. Um, does Russia then... How long does it take for Russia to to win this war? Well, I don't think Russia can win the war in the way it originally envisioned, which was uh, um, a Russian conquest of Kiev, uh, leading to the killing of President Zelensky and the emplacement of some puppet regime, uh, if not outright annexation of of, of Ukraine itself. Uh, because the Ukrainians will fight a guerrilla war. The Ukrainians will. I mean, the U Ukraine. Maybe a smaller country than Russia, but it's you know a country roughly the size of Spain. It's not a it's not a small place that the Russians can easily overpower. But they would be able to consolidate their victories and their land seizure in eastern Ukraine and Donbas and uh, along the Sea of Azov. They would probably be able to expand it. They would be able to force a humiliating Ukrainian surrender of some uh, of some kind uh, and dictate terms. And they would be in a position after, because the you know the Russians have suffered gigantic losses after licking their wounds for five years and rebuilding their military to go for the third phase of the war. You know, it's important to remember that the war that we're that that, that Ukraine is now fighting uh, didn't begin in February of twenty two. It began way back in twenty fourteen. This is now a ten year war that Ukraine has been fighting against uh, against Russian aggression. Uh, the war comes out of the refrigerator and is a hot war, goes back in the refrigerator, and that might occur now from between now and 2030. But, you know, Vladimir Putin sees himself as the reincarnation of a kind of a Peter the Great. Um, he understands that Russia is only a superpower if it possesses or controls Ukraine. And I think he's intent on doing it before he dies. He sees that as his as his historical legacy. But don't think for a minute that if if uh, you know this war goes into the fridge and he manages as he will to reconstitute his military quickly, that other states, uh, Moldova, for example, um, uh, won't be in the crosshairs of Russian aggression, and that there won't be other Russian efforts to shape European politics in a pro-Russia direction. You see that with Viktor Orban uh, in in Hungary, who's been. Uh, for a long time held up NATO uh, NATO uh, expansion, he will look to get other Viktor Orban types elected, even in major European countries. Think that there's there's a real possibility that a someone like Marine Le Pen, the heir of a fascist political tradition, could could one day become the president of France. Well, you used to be a Republican. Can you explain why members of the Republican Party seem to be so infatuated with Vladimir Putin? You know, it's like, uh, um, imagine that you're uh, some very close relative, your brother, your sister, someone with whom, you know, you were entwined, 
um, has a psychotic break. That's 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 the feeling I have with the Republican Party. I mean, if I grew up with one certainty as a young conservative, is that I was against Russia. It was kind of the no-brainer. Um, uh, I was certainly against the KGB or any of the heirs of the KGB. And if you listen to Republican uh, rhetoric and and action, really, you know, all the way up until the arrival of Trump, it was squarely against Russia. Even in the early phases of this war, uh, people like Mitch McConnell and uh, other uh, other uh, Republicans were uh, pretty clear-eyed about Russia. What what has happened, I think, is 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 this. The Republican Party used to be a conservative party, and it is now an illiberal party. And there's a big difference between conservative and illiberal. Uh, uh, there are conservative parties all over the world. The CDU in Germany, for example, the Tories in in, in Great Britain, that nonetheless, despite a certain conservatism, uh, hew toward uh, a philosophically liberal outlook. They believe in the concept of liberty, both at home and abroad. They believe in the rule of uh, law. They believe in concepts like free speech as central to, you know, what what used to be called the constitution of, of, of liberty. That, to me, is real conservatism. And I've always argued that every society is going to have a conservative party, so it should be a morally healthy conservative party. Even if you, the listener, identify as a liberal or progressive, you probably want conservatives you can live with, right? Conservatives you can at least break bread with and and have have a beer with. But what you now have in the Republican Party, thanks to Trump, isn't just a kind of a populism, it's illiberalism. It is opposition to the core concepts of not only a liberal society at home, an open society, a welcoming society, a tolerant society, um, but a liberal international order abroad, where democracies, including embattled democracies, feel secure and where America is prepared to be the the margin, the buffer between free and open uh, societies, or at least societies that want more freedom and, and despotism and totalitarianism. And the Trump party, which is not the Republican party I recognize, uh, has become illiberal. And that's why it scares me. Mm. And linked with this rise of illiberalism is a rise in anti-Semitism. And since the war, there have been thousands of cases of incidents of anti-Semitism since uh, since the attack, since the October 7th attack. But this has been going on for a while here in the United States and elsewhere. And so I, I wonder if you can talk about the through line there as we're seeing the rise in right-wing fascism everywhere, including the United States, this link to anti-Semitism, despite the fact that Trump and Benjamin Netanyahu seem to get along like a house on fire. So look, let's be clear. Um, Anti-Semitism courses through the veins of both the far right and the far left. Um, And there's no use, especially if you're Jewish and concerned about the rise of anti-Semitism, to get into an argument, is it worse on the far right or is it worse on the far left? I see far left pro pro Hamas protesters. I refuse to call them pro Palestinian, but pro Hamas protesters uh, harassing Jewish businesses in 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 Philadelphia, harassing Jewish students on on college campus. Uh, they're they're every bit, in my view, as anti-Semitic, even though they call themselves anti-Zionists, as the marchers in uh, in Charlottesville were. But to take to take the far right. Just for for the beginning of the converse of the, of the discussion, you know, look, um, we Jews cannot escape the fact that we have always stood for a set of concepts that are antithetical to despotism and illiberalism. You know, the foundation story of the Jewish people is a story of fleeing a tyrant, Pharaoh, and escaping towards liberty. That's that's central to who we are. The, 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 the story of Exodus becomes the inspiration for so many other freedom stories, not the least of which is the African-American story, which drew that inspiration explicitly from the, the, the Exodus. We believe in a concept of peoplehood, which is an identity that is somewhere between 
the individual and the state, an intermediate identity, the idea of the hyphenated individual, Jewish American, Black American, Asian American, whatever it is, that intermediate source of loyalty, we, we stand for that. Jews have stood for universal literacy, or at least universal male literacy, but increasingly it was female literacy, because every Jewish child becoming a man had to be able to read. So radical concept, which we now, you know, sort of uh, take for, uh, for granted. Monotheism, the idea that there's one ethical standard, whatever your culture, whatever your religion, thou shalt not murder applies not only to Jews, but to Egyptians and everyone else as well. That is the underpinning of the concept of universal human rights. And I mention all of this because every concept that I've mentioned, oh, and one last one, which is argument for the sake of heaven, the belief that dissent should be inscribed in our tradition and not treated as heresy. All of those concepts are foundationally liberal concepts. You can look and trace the origins of the modern, and I mean this in the classical sense, modern liberal order by looking at those Jewish Jewish concepts. So it's not a surprise that any political movement, including political movements on the right, that hate free thought, that hate uh, um, hyphenated identities, that hate education, that hate universal rights, are not going to be sympathetic to the Jews. There's one other aspect of it, Madeline, which is this. Anti-Semitism has almost always taken the form of a conspiracy theory. Uh -huh. Jews got the Romans to kill Christ is a conspiracy theory. The plague was started because Jews were poisoning wells, another conspiracy theory. Jewish financiers are responsible for all the world's wars, conspiracy theory. If you have a political movement like the Republican Party today that is so addicted to conspiracy theories, Barack Obama was born in Kenya the 2020 election was stolen. Bill Gates has implanted a microchip in your arm uh, so he can monitor and monetize your, you know, your whatever uh, bodily functions. Whatever the ridiculous conspiracy theory, if people are prepared to believe anything about anything, eventually they're going to believe the worst about Jews. And so I think a lot of this goes far to explain why you now have um so many signs of this infection on the right of, if not outright anti-Semitism, what I call anti-Semitic adjacent uh, mentality. Uh, the, the most important of that is this word globalist. Every time you hear the word globalist, to me, it's code word for Jew. Uh, and, and it really concerns me. Or George Soros, for that matter. Um what about on the left, though, on college campuses, which where we've seen a lot of concern and a very marked increase in anti-Semitic incidents? Um, this is a place where liberal thought is supposed to flower, college campuses. So what's the explanation there? Well, again, college campuses have gone from being liberal. You know, people used to complain about liberal academia, and now it's illiberal academia, you hear about cancel culture. You hear surveys show that um, large percentages of students are afraid to express their uh, opinions in class or, or 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 on the quad. So that's that's part of it. The second part is that anti-Semitism, you know, which itself is just a 19th century term for Jew hatred, has found a new expression of Jew hatred, which is called anti-Zionism. Now, I mentioned earlier that anti-Semitism is a conspiracy theory. So the, the 19th century version of, anti, of, of, of the Jewish anti-Jewish conspiracy theory was the idea that Jews in Europe who presented themselves as like loyal Germans or loyal Frenchmen or loyal Englishmen were not really French, English, or German at all. They were Semites. They came from another place. They came from the Middle East. And so there had to be a politics, a political movement to oppose the Semites, which is why the original anti-Semite, Wilhelm Marr, started the League of Anti-Semites. That was, that was a political movement. Anti-Semitism has always been a, a political movement as well as a, 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 a just an ordinary bigotry, right? Like, like, other, like other bigotries. And so the suggestion by the 19th century anti-Semites was Jews are imposters because they claim to be, say, German when they're really Semitic. 
and Jews are swindlers. Well, what are what are these imposters doing? Well, they're swindling you out of your patrimony, your culture, your money, your government, whatever. What is the anti-Zionist view? The anti-Zionist view is that <laughs> number one, Jews are imposters, which is to say that Israelis say that they are um, from the Holy Land, that they are heirs to the Jewish tradition of thousands of years ago, that there was an unbroken Jewish presence in the Holy Land from antiquity to the present. And what are they doing? They're swindlers. They're swindling Palestinians out of their patrimony, out of their land. So they're identical conspiracy theories. The only thing that has changed is that to the anti-Semite, the Jew was from the Middle East, and to the anti-Zionist, the Jew is from Europe or the United States or wherever. So anti-Zionism, as far as I'm concerned, is simply 21st century anti-Semitism. Well, that's controversial. Your colleague, Jonathan Weissman, wrote about that recently, about the various um, ideas around that. The question, I think that was in the headline, is anti-Zionism, anti-Semitism. I'm here to tell you it is. (laughs) But some people say, look, no, the safer place for Jews at this moment is probably the United States, um, as an example. Madeline, um, if you cast your mind back a little more than 100 years, to the most advanced country in Europe, which was Germany, you would find that the most powerful man in Germany was Walter Rathenau. The most important scientist in Germany was Albert Einstein. The greatest doctor in Germany was Otto von Meyerhoff. And the most significant philosopher in Germany was Edmund Husserl. You know what they had in common? All Jews. One third of German Nobel Prize winners before the war were Jewish. That was 1922. 11 years later, Hitler came to power. So the idea that just because there are a lot of prominent and Jews in the United States who feel secure, the idea that they are secure, I think, is an illusion. You know, one of the things about anti-Semitism that is so insidious is that most forms of bigotry uh, are expressions of punching down, right? It's of mm-hmm. harming weaker people in society, people who don't have economic advantages or political advantages. But anti-Semitism always takes the form of punching up. You know, it's it's one of the funny things about anti-Semitism that when someone says uh, um, clever Jew, you know they mean it in an anti-Semitic way. So the idea of anti-Semitism is that it is a, or the anti-Semite at least, almost always sees himself as the average man punching up against the powerful few. Mm -hmm. By the way, another reason why anti-Semitism is able to take hold on the left, because it's consonant with some ideas on the left of like fighting the people with wealth, privilege, and power, uh, and and so on. But but the idea that uh, Jews are safer in the United States um, in this climate than they are in a state where they at least have the means of fighting back where they have an army, where they have something to fight for and land to defend, I think is 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 wrong. I hope Jews will be safe in the United States forever, and I hope they'll be safer in Israel as soon as possible. But I think we're deluding ourselves looking at the rise of anti-Semitism, and not just the anti-Semitism we see, but the anti-Semitism we sense, um, and, and, and imagining that what happened in Germany 100 years ago couldn't happen here as well. Okay, um, let me get to some of the questions. There are a lot of questions from our viewers, and I'll go from back to front, uh, latest to earliest. Are Qatar and other Muslim countries giving money to American universities to help foster anti-Zionist and anti-Israel thoughts, I guess, in students? Is there a way to stop this infusion of money? I hear that. Um, I don't know it for a fact, but simply because I I haven't had time to really look into it. But it's it's something that uh, I've I've read. Um, I, I don't think, having said that, even if it's true, I don't think the problem is that Qataris or Saudis uh, are funding bad people. There are plenty of people who uh, are not receiving funding who have. Um, drunk the Kool-Aid on, you know, certain forms of politics um, that have uh, anti-Semitic uh, tendencies. You know, the the ethnic studies 
you know, whenever you look at anti-Israel resolutions on college campuses, overwhelmingly the signatories have backgrounds in ethnic studies, which started, I think, at San Francisco State College in the 1960s. And that comes from a very different stream than than Qatari money, which is much more recent. I think the issue is not uh, where the money is coming from. It's what the ideology is about. Okay, many have asked, do you think that Israel's policies in the West Bank and vis-a-vis the occupation bear any relation to the anti-Semitism we are seeing? Look, uh, I have uh, all kinds of misgivings and problems with a lot of Israeli policies when it comes uh, to the West Bank. Um, But to blame anti-Semitism on the behavior of the Jews is not explaining anti-Semitism. It's it's replicating anti-Semitism. You know, uh, you you American Jew are suffering from anti-Semitism because of what some other Jew is doing. Uh, That's that's not a a satisfactory or a correct answer. um, uh, explanation for what's happening. And by the way, you know, I really wish that the battle we were in ideologically were about the West Bank. I think that's a reasonable debate to have. I I would be thrilled if Israel could solve its problems by just withdrawing from the West Bank. The, the problem that Israel has is that when it withdrew from Gaza, it got more war, not less. When it withdrew from Gaza, the worst people in Gaza took over within two years, and within three years, were making war on Israel, producing rockets, and as we now know, building hundreds of miles of of tunnels. So it's not that simple. I mean, look, I've always taken the view that the purpose of Zionism is is, is for Jews to neither be ruled by others nor rule others. And Israel, in the long term... desperately needs to live side by side with a Palestinian state, provided that the Palestinian state is prepared to live side by side with it in peace and security. And that's been a very hard road. But that's not what this war is about. Hamas does not want a two-state solution. The protesters that I was seeing in Times Square calling from the river to the sea do not want a two-state solution. They want a one-state solution a Palestinian state, almost certainly a Palestinian state that has no Jews because those Jews have either been thrown into the sea or killed or otherwise been expelled. And that is is the nature of the the conflict we are in. We are long past the day when this was about the West Bank. This is not about it. It's about the existence of the state of Israel. What's in dispute is not what happened in 1967. It's what happened in 1948. Okay. Um, well, Netanyahu also doesn't want a two-state solution. He's made that very clear. So I, I don't think either side wants a two-state solution. Well, hang on a second. So um, let's leave Netanyahu to one side. I am certain that if you asked the majority of Israelis and said, uh, I don't know, um, God has assured me or whatever, I have gone into the future and I have seen that if Israel withdraws from every last millimeter of um Gaza, from which it withdrew in 2005, and and the West Bank, that Israelis will have peace and security forever, and the West Bank won't just become another Hamastan. 80% of Israel would instantly say yes to that. Instantly say yes to that. I have no doubt about it. And they would elect a government that would seek that. In fact, that's exactly what they did in 1992 when they elected Yitzhak Rabin. The the sad reality, as Israelis see it, is that every time they have withdrawn from territory, what has come in its place is not goodwill. It's not a movement towards peace. It's it's suicide bombings. And I was editor of the Jerusalem Post and witnessed some of those suicide bombings myself in real time. They are not. uh, They are. They are. They are memories I will never strip from my mind. So what happened here, the views that Netanyahu is expressing, happened for a reason. They didn't just happen because of a kind of pig-headed hatred of the idea of peace. They happened because of really bitter experience with Yasser Arafat and then again with uh, with Hamas. Uh, let's see. Ayana asks, your comment that Jews are not safe in the United States is, of course, very scary. Don't you think that the fact that we are so multi- national or multicultural makes this country very different from Germany in 1933. I hope so. 
but um, Jews have been singled out in societies that were um, ethnically and religiously diverse, uh, like the Roman Empire, for example, um, and in societies that were uh, uh, much less diverse. And by the way, German Jews were more German than the Germans. Uh, uh, you you read um, read. There was a wonderful book called The Pity of It All. I think the the author was uh, Amos Elon, but I could I could have that wrong. But so many German Jews fought with honor and distinction in the First World War were were absolutely committed German patriots. Were indistinguishable from Germans uh, in every respect, uh, except that they prayed in a in a reform shul as opposed to a, a Christian church. And and they were slaughtered. And by the way, not just those Jews, but Jews who had converted to Christianity and were still slaughtered. So um, whether a society is ethnically, whether Jews are the only minority or one of many minorities has historically, I don't think, helped us all that much. Oh, my gosh. We have so many questions. These are really great questions. All right. Many people have asked about the role that university professors are playing in influencing young Americans to become anti-Israel. What can be done about that? If that is indeed true, end tenure. <laughs> I mean it. I mean it. Most of America, uh, most of Americans are at will employees, as they say, um, and we have a lot of excellence, uh, intellectual excellence, in, in places where where people can be fired. Um, uh, I also think we should have many more professors of practice, uh, a, a richer variety of people in the professoriate, not simply people who've gone through PhD uh, uh, tracks. I mean, in fact, I just was giving a talk in New York yesterday about ideas in terms of educational uh, reform. And, and I think there's tremendous ferment here, maybe because of the testimony of the three university presidents and the and the uh, scandal uh, uh, of that of that testimony. Um, but there's a lot that that can be done. I mean, tenure in, in an ideal world, entrenches independence of thought, right? Because uh, heterodox-minded uh, professors can't be fired. But I think in, in, in the way in which it's worked out perversely, tenure has done more to entrench a certain kind of um, orthodoxy of thought, and often an orthodoxy of thought, which is increasingly hostile to not just Israel, but to, to Jews and Jewish students. So that's this is a field that's wide open. And I would just say one more thing. I think the opportunity is not in the famous schools. Uh, Harvard and Penn uh, and Stanford are always going to have enough money to do whatever it is they want, irrespective of donor pressure. But there are a lot of small second tier schools that need to either change or die. Um, and I think a lot of these schools could be thinking really imaginatively about the kind of curriculum they offer, not just students, but parents who are increasingly suspicious of higher education. I think there was a Pew survey that showed that something like only 36% of Americans now have high confidence in higher education. So they have to restore trust. And the perception that you have a professoriate that is more interested in ideology than in pedagogy is a big problem that these schools have. So they can start turning it around. If I were a major philanthropist, instead of, and I just withheld, I don't know, $300 million from a famous school, I would be investing those, those dollars in smaller schools with the assurance that we could have presidents and professors and deans who are really committed to free expression and to pedagogy, not ideology. Uh, Andrew says, I live in Michigan and Biden's support for Israel may lose him the state because of the large Arab Muslim population. Any comments on that? It, it might. And then in that case, Biden ought to start thinking about how he wins uh, or retains the vote in Arizona and Georgia and the other states that gave him his his margin the last time uh, around. Michigan isn't the uh, the only state. And look, again, I, we said this earlier. Biden's problem is way bigger than his position on the Israel-Hamas war. Uh, um, he may actually be able to derive the benefit of Republican incompetence and refusal to pass a really sensible immigration bill. It's going to be a struggle for him to get over the fact that uh, grocery prices are 25 percent higher today than they were four years ago. Um, 
And it's going to be really hard for him to get over the perception that he's just physically feeble. It's not an age issue. He just communicates a certain kind of feebleness. And I've been urging the president for a long time to be a good one-term president who puts country above everything else and let uh, talented younger Democrats, and there are a lot of them, uh, vie for vie for the for the nomination. It, I still think there's a 30% chance that around the time of the convention, he steps down and someone like Gretchen Whitmer, the two-term, second-term governor of Michigan, very popular, young, energetic, uh, succeeds him as the nominee. Really? Uh, and, uh, you know, listen, the Where, conversation how is do you get, if I speculate like this. Who's right? telling you that? Or is that your... <laughs> Your hope more than anything else. I'm not saying. <laughs> I mean, he has. I am, I am simply seeding. I mean, S E E D seeding the idea in the minds of these several thousand people we've got on this call. <laughs> well, because he has clung to this idea that he's the only one who can beat Trump because he's done it. He is the only Democrat. Well, I don't want to say the only Democrat, but I think he is one of the more vulnerable Democrats against Trump for the reasons I mentioned. And um, I mean, it's funny that the Republicans are putting up probably the most vulnerable Republican to be their nominee, Trump. I think if Nikki Haley were the nominee, she would be very run very strong, Mm -hmm. but she's not going to win the nomination. And the Democrats are putting forward their most vulnerable nominee, um, and uh, it's incredible, but so much about American politics is incredible that this is the choice it appears we're going to have in uh, in nine months. So if it were Whitmer versus Haley, who would you support and who do you think would win? I'd, I'd vote for Haley. I'm, con- I'm a conservative. People sometimes are shocked because I've been so outspoken in my opposition to Trump. But Haley comes closer to uh expressing my sort of political worldview. And I say that obviously with reservations, you know, pardoning Trump, all this stuff uh, that she's she said, I get that that's normal politics. But I think it's important for the Republican Party to return to planet normal. And they've been off that planet for some time. And again, I come back to this fundamental position, whether you're a Republican or a Democrat, you want a healthy conservative movement in the United States. and when you don't have it, you're in real danger. And we don't have one right now. So anything that can return the Republican Party to its um, internationalist, free trade, free enterprise, free speech roots, uh, uh, based in a sense of uh, normality and the rule of law, is is good for the United States. So that that's that's just where I where I sit. Where how does that happen? What has to happen for that return to occur? Well, I mean, in my view, and I, you know, again, I'm I, I'm a critic of Biden, but I hope Biden wins by a huge margin um, and surprises everyone, because I don't know what else drives a stake into the heart of Trumpism. You know, I thought 2020 was going to do it. I thought 2022 was going to do it with a with a terrible Republican showing in the midterms, but nothing seems to work because I don't think that the Republican Party under Trump is a party. I think it's a cult, and. Uh, um, so, um, you know, you guys in California probably have experts on the subject of cults that we just don't have out here in New York. How does a cult end? That's a great question. I'd like I'd like someone to address. Well, Kool-Aid is involved, I think. Well, hopefully not. But in that <laughs> um, case, maybe they're maybe they're less extreme methods. Right. OK, well, so in the in honor of David Lehrer and the spirit of David Lehrer, he would he would like this. Can you end on an optimistic note? The United States has been through periods of darkness before. And um, uh, one of the differences between a dictatorship and a democracy is that dictatorships always advertise their strengths and hide their weaknesses. And democracies, perversely, always advertise our weaknesses. That's what the media is in the business of doing. So much so that we hide our strengths even from ourselves. You know, if you look at the 1970s, it was a period that seemed very grim. And yet Steve Jobs, Bill Gates, uh, Larry Ellison, so many others were incubating the future in their in their garages or, you know, in their parents' homes. And 
what is probably notable in the United States, what historians will remember maybe about this period isn't necessarily everything that's going wrong, but it's the origins of the things that would eventually go right. And I'm confident that um, there's some brilliant 25-year-old who is going to provide us with the next uh, the next advances in uh, immunotherapies or bringing harnessing AI for the common good or to solve huge challenges like like climate and other other global challenges, and that Americans will eventually find their feet. Uh, and realize that we have to stand united against despotism, against bigotry, and against anti-Semitism. Why am I confident of this? Because it's happened before, and it happened when other people, smart people, were in despair. So uh, the lesson of history is that despair uh, is not always a predictive certainty. Uh, We can can find reasons for uh, optimism, even even in moments like this. All right. Well, thank you for ending on that note. Thank you, Madeline. Thank you. Thank you so much for being with us again. I hope to see you again soon.